Salvador Perez. The 2-2. Francisco Giants for the third time in the last five years and their hero Madison Bunker. It's just me today, maybe the uh, worst nightmare of the listeners of the sportscasters. Uh, Don is still enjoying time with his wife and his newborn son and his daughter, just enjoying uh, some family time. Hopefully, uh, Don will be back next week. Before we get started or or too far down the path here today, I want to thank Adam Lazarus, who I thought did a great job filling in for Don last week. Really appreciated having Adam joined me and uh, and and guest Mike like that, something we haven't necessarily done that way before. Uh, really appreciate that because we had a great podcast to bring to you, uh, as we do today. But uh, we had a great one last week, and I didn't want to uh, I didn't want to do it alone just just quite yet. But last week's podca- podcast also featured Bob McKenzie from TSN and now the NBC Sports Network, and his talking about his great book. And I love the way that interview turned out. Bob was nice enough to give us a retweet to his 800,000 followers, which is huge for us. And uh, we got some some new listeners, hopefully, this week and some new followers on uh, Twitter as well. And also Lee Jenkins, who's been nothing short of a hero to this podcast, uh, made a, another appearance on the show to preview the NBA season, something I could never do on my own. Uh, so thank you so much to Lee. If you want to check that show out uh, to hear Adam, myself, Bob McKenzie, Lee Jenkins, it's on our website www.sports-casters.com. It's also on Stitcher, and it's on iTunes, uh, all over. So hopefully you have an easy way to listen and, and find it no problem. If, if you're having a problem with that, uh, please let me know. It is October 30th, 2014, uh, the day before Halloween. It's very fall-like in Buffalo. Uh, it could be some rain for trick-or-treating. I feel bad for the kids in that sense. Here's what we got today on the podcast. I'm going to do an intro uh, not three things in its traditional sense. I won't play the three things music and go through one, two, three. But I will go over the World Series, talk for a second about the Saints, and and maybe hit one or two other things in sports. And then I really want to take a minute longer than normal to talk about the book club, where we're at, having finished Bob's book last week, what we have left this month, and what we might be looking forward to. And then I have a great interview, which sort of ties into the book club, with Christopher McDougall, the author of Born to Run, one of the most successful sports books of all time. It was released in 2009, and just before I did the interview with him today, I looked on, on the iBooks, the iTunes charts under sports. It's number seven right now, so just incredible, uh, successful book. He was the editor of the 2014 Best American Sports Writing Series, and uh, he is very kind enough to give us time. You know, one of the very first books we featured was the 2011 Best American Sports Writing. And Jane Levy was the the guest editor that year. And obviously, we forged a great relationship with Jane. She was great to us that day. She's been on several times since. She's our Yankees expert. 
and she's a she's she brings unbelievable prestige to this podcast. I, I, honestly, when I say that, when Jane's on, it might come off as uh, pandering to her, but I promise you that there's guests I've reached out to, and I said, "Listen, Jane Levy's been on here," and they say, "Okay, I'll do it then." That that's not I'm not kidding about that. That's absolutely true. And uh, since then, we haven't had an editor till now. Uh, we had Glenn Stout, the two thousand the the series editor, the the main man behind this book was on the show. And I think he did it in 2012 when Michael Wilbon was the editor. Never even had a chance to reach out and ask Michael Wilbon. Uh, Last year's editor is a really disappointing story. He's a Yale guy. And I found him on Twitter and I said, hey, you know, I'd love to to have you on here to, to talk about this. And he said, you know, no problem. And uh, I was real excited, and we started exchanging emails. And it, we had – this is what he said. He said to me, uh, J.R. Moringer, I hope I'm saying his name right. I never got to a point where I found out for sure. But he said to me, listen, I'm going to Italy to promote a book for a few weeks. When I get back – We'll do this. This is the this is where you can read. This is where you email me here. We'll set up a time. We got back to that point. That date came. I emailed him. I emailed him again and again and again. He just never got back to me. So we didn't have him. And I don't know what happened there. I wish we would have. Uh, you know, I I was excited to talk to him about Yale and, and see what he thought about the hockey team winning the national championship in 2013, uh, the year of his book. But we just we never got it set up. Uh, this year, uh, Christopher McDougall, who's a Harvard guy was the editor, and uh, I reached out to him similar way uh, on, on, I think, actually, I think on his website, there is a contact, and I may have just emailed him directly on there, and we set up a tentative time. That time didn't work out, so we set up a new time, and bam, we did it today, and it's great. I can't wait for you to hear it. I hope you enjoy it, uh, but the Best American Sports Writing Anthology is amazing. I'll talk about that more in a minute. So we have Christopher McDougall on the podcast today. That's the only interview. And then I'm going to end the show with one last thing. Still not going to make picks, obviously, until Don gets back. Before we get to Mr. McDougall and before we get to the books, a few things I wanted to say about the World Series, which ended last night. A really great, great postseason for Major League Baseball. In the beginning, through the wild card, uh, the, the DS series and the, the LCS series, we had great games, but not great series. And then I think in the World Series, we didn't have as many great games, but we had a great long seven-game series that ended with a great game. And I hope it did well, because I, I remember thinking at the end of the game last night just that I love baseball. I just really do. I love, I love the drama in it, and I love watching it and it's, when it's at its best. Uh, it's a slice of Americana, and uh, what we've seen from Madison Bumgarner is something that people are going to talk about forever. I mean, it was one of the great pitching performances over the course of the World Series to to pitch the two games and get wins, and then to come back for Game 7 on two days rest, and to throw almost 70 pitches, and from the fifth inning to the ninth inning, and to practically get through that untouched was unbelievable. And, you know, the Royals have maybe played a better World Series, except for they didn't have Bumgardner, and they lost the three games he appeared, and... He won the MVP, which brought us the greatness that was the Chevy guy. I hope you've seen that and stuff. It was amazing. And uh, Bumgarner's performance is going to be talked about for a long, long time. The way we talk about 
I saw this on Twitter a lot last night, Pedro Martinez's relief appearance against the Indians in, I believe, 1999. I think it was a 6-6 game, a crazy game he came into and just shut the door from there. Uh, the one hit that they did get on Baumgartner, well, they got a couple, but the one they got in the ninth inning, which was a single, single uh, by Alex Gordon that got treated like a an explosion by the outfielders and, and ended up rolling to the wall and then getting kicked and ended up with a single and a two-base error and Alex Gordon on third base. And no, there was it would have been silly to send Alex Gordon. He would have been out by such an embarrassing margin that you know, we, we'd be killing that poor third base coach. You wouldn't even be able to go home. But one thing I wonder is if Alex Gordon would have hustled out of the box, would he have had a better chance to make it? Because he didn't really start running hard until he got to first base. I think he either assumed it was an out or it was going to be a, a bloop single that would would leave him on first base. And you never want to run into an out. But uh, I wonder if he's going to bed last night saying, man, I wish I would have been hustling that whole way. I could have made it. Either way, obviously there's nothing for the Royals to be ashamed of. They had a great postseason, and they there was a rebirth of baseball in Kansas City because of it. And that's exciting. You know, we've talked about on this podcast since we started. Jeff Passan was on show number one, Joe Poznanski show number six. They're well-noted national writers with ties to Kansas City. And the Royals have always been a topic since we, when we had those guys back. Uh, Jeff several times and Mr. Pesdansky one time since. The Royals are never far from, from discussion. And I'm glad that they had that season. I like that. And uh, I, think, I think they have some really great stuff. And uh, I, hope th- I hope they can get back. Uh, Kansas City is a good, good baseball city. And baseball is better when, when they're in it. As for the Giants, that's three in five years, which is crazy in this era of parody and, and how difficult it can be to to get through a postseason. The Major League Baseball postseason is more like March Madness than ever before now uh, with the wild card and things like that. They've made it more difficult for the wild card team. you got to burn your ace in that one-game playoff and then start the DS and go on the road and all that. Yet here we were uh, with Bud Selig's last trophy presentation being a World Series decided by the two wildcard representatives in each league. But it's incredible what the Giants have done. Bruce Bochy's going to the Hall of Fame. Buster Posey's going to the Hall of Fame. And I'm looking forward uh, to baseball season next next year. Second thing I want to talk about for a second since I'm by myself is the Saints. And I've said several times on Twitter that this is my most hated Saints team ever. And I've said that in moments of supreme disappointment, obviously. But I don't know that I don't know for sure that I don't believe that. And and it's not because they, they're as bad as some Saints teams have been in the past. Uh, maybe like the 1999 version that went 3-13. and 13. But there was so much expectation. I had such high hopes. Anytime anyone asked me during the season, how good are the Saints going to be? My answer was always, great. They're going to be very, very good. And they're nowhere near that. Now... In the last two games against Detroit and Green Bay, I feel like I got to watch the team I thought they would be all summer. Now, they ruined that in Detroit by blowing the game in ridiculous meltdown fashion. But it was there. There was something there, and then they they put it all together against Green Bay last week, and I was proud of them. And I want to believe in them. But here we are, seven weeks into the season, and we're 3-0 at home and 0-4 on the road. 
And tonight I'll be watching as they travel to Carolina to play the Panthers in, in arguably the most important game of the season. And I'm going to be very disappointed if if they don't if they don't give a great effort tonight. If they lose and played their best, I'll accept that. Hey, this team's just not what I thought. They're not good enough. But if they just if they embarrass themselves like they did in Dallas, the preparation doesn't seem to be there. Even on a short week, I'll be really disappointed. So I'm really interested to see what happens with the Saints tonight. Maybe calling them my most hated team is extreme, but they make me feel something about them, a venom towards them that I don't often feel with the Saints. Last thing I wanted to mention about sports, and then we'll get into the book club and, and what's uh, what's laid out for that, is LeBron James is returning to Cleveland tonight. We talked about a lot about that with Lee Jenkins last week, and I encourage you to check that out. Obviously, Lee broke the story that LeBron will go back, back to Cleveland. And the one thing I wanted to say is I hope Cleveland enjoys it tonight because it's one of those things that is pretty rare, and it's something we dreamed of in Buffalo with Pat Kane, that one day we'd be able to welcome him to Buffalo as a Sabre. And, and that's probably not going to happen, at least in his prime, as he just got a, a long contract extension to stay in Chicago. But I think it's rare to have someone not only be able to draft him first overall and have success with him, but then to watch him leave and come back. It's just a great thing for Cleveland, and I really hope they enjoy it tonight. Because I want to root for things like that, because to me, rooting for them gives some kind of good karma to my city or my life as a, a sports fan. So... Uh, have fun tonight, Cleveland. All right, we're going to get in a second to my interview with Christopher McDougall, who's uh, the author of The Best American Sports Writing. Or not the author, that's a poor word. He's the editor of The Best American Sports Writing Anthology for 2014, and I have a great interview with him. I hope you enjoy. Uh, that wasn't officially a, a book club book of the month, but it was something that we that we penned, something I wanted you to to notice. Uh, One thing that has officially been a book club book of the month is Fourth Down in Dunbar by David Dorsey. He's at David A. Dorsey on Twitter. I I had a chance to read this and read about players like Deion Sanders and Javon Kurse and Sammy Watkins, and I'm going to reach out to David this week and hopefully get him on the next show to talk more about this book. So if you have a chance, please uh, get Fourth Down in Dunbar. David is looking for an audience for this book outside of Florida. And I hope that in some small way our, our podcast can provide that for him. So if you get a chance, please read Fourth Down in, Dun- in Dunbar. We finished Bob McKenzie's book last week. Hopefully we'll finish his Dave book next week. Uh, we're going to talk to Crystal McDougall today. Here's what I think is coming. Death of WCW, the 10th anniversary of R.D. Reynolds' book. Uh, I reached out to the publisher, and I think we're going to get a couple copies and have a copy to give away. It's at WrestleCrapRD. It's one of the best wrestling books I ever read, and it's an updated 10-year anniversary edition of the book. And uh, I think we're going to do that. And when I, when, I, when, I, when I approached the publisher about it, he said, hey, I have this other book, uh, Hockey Card Stories, True Tales from Your Favorite Card by Ken Reed, who's at Sportsnet in Canada. And I thought, sure, I love hockey. I'll do another hockey book. So we're going to look into that. The authors are R.D. Reynolds, who's at WrestleCrapRD on Twitter, and at Sportsnet Ken for the Ken Reed Hockey Stories book. So we'll see what happens there. One other thing that I have my eye on, and I'm going to prepare a very detailed pitch to our good friend John Wertheim. Don't know if you noticed, but in this week's Sports Illustrated, there is an excerpt of an Al Michaels bio that John Wertheim uh, helped out with. And and Al Michaels is on the short list for sure of dream guests for the show. Uh, So I'm going to work hard on, and hopefully featuring that book comes out in the middle of November. 
Uh, so I'm going to see what I can do on that. All right. Uh, thank you for joining me. I hope that wasn't too bad or too painful, just me by myself. In my head, it doesn't sound like it was too terrible, but who knows. I'm going to take a break, and I'm going to come back with Christopher McDougal. Agostino gives it a ride. Hard hit by Agostino. Carocchio takes a Harvard player down from the beginning. Here comes Kenny Agostino. Are we going to go for hats? Go, go! Anthony Day! Welcome to the goal, Colin Young Man! 7-1! That's the best retaliation right there. Dude takes a shot of the mouth, and they give one right back on the power play. A beautiful play by the Bulldogs. Take that one, Harvard. Our next guest is from Pennsylvania and is a graduate of Harvard. He's the author of the best-selling book, Born to Run, a fixture on the best-selling charts since its release in 2009. He has contributed work for Esquire, New York Times Magazine, and was an editor for Men's Health. He's also the editor of the 2014 Best American Sports Writing Series. He's making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Christopher McDougall. How are you doing today, Mr. McDougall? Oh man, I am really happy because I'm, I'm I'm actually happy to have this opportunity to talk about best American sports writing, which I think does not get nearly attention a book this great deserves. Um, well, that's interesting. I, I wonder does did you, have you not done much media for it then? Essentially, like when you're the editor of this thing, do people besides me come calling, and how many? Uh, no, I know I've heard a little bit. Um, one or two people have contacted me, but but not much. And you know, I'm sort of curious about that. Maybe because it's become such a part of the landscape that it's not like other books when they come out, they're kind of a one-off. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell comes out with a new book. It's like a new idea. It's something special. And, and maybe people just sort of come to accept best American sports writing kind of like, you know, Christmas or Easter. You don't have to make a big deal about it because you know there'll be another one next year. Yeah, and I think one reason why the, the media might be a little low on it is I know that uh, the Mr. Stout, the executive editor of it, I think he does try to protect you guys a little bit. I think he does think that he asks a lot of very busy people. And I I think he feels like at this point, maybe you guys have kind of done enough. I know, you know, in approaching him about the book, I mean, really since Jane Levy did it, which I think was 2011, maybe the 2012, we've been pretty involved. And, um, you know, he's he's never said, don't bother them. But he's also said, you know, temper your expectations. You know, they might not be available to do something <laughs> like this. You know? Well, let me, let me, Glenn, if you're listening, dude, throw us to the sharks, man, um, <laughs> because this is the best effing job business. Uh, being a guest editor for Best American Sports Writing, the only bad thing about it is even as you're doing it, you feel a sense of loss because you know you'll never get a chance to do it again. And it's so fun that I think every editor, I'm sure, probably feels the way I do, which is that you can't wait to talk about this stuff. You know, you're so thrilled with your choices that you, you want to talk about them. Well, tell me a little bit about the job that you did specifically, what your process was, and and how it kind of uh, how it worked, what what you did to to pick the pieces, how you got here, a little bit. It was all kind of a funny thing, you know. This all came about because um, my friend Scott Jorick, one of the guys that I wrote about in Born to Run, 
he published a book of his own, and he's doing an event up in Boston, and he asked me to come up and join him on stage and talk a little bit. So after the event, we got to dinner, and his editor from Houghton Mifflin was there. And she was great and really cool, and we all had like a really good, fun dinner. And during the course of the dinner, she said, you know, I also take care of best American sports writing. And my eyes lit up, because, you know, everybody wants to land a piece in best American sports writing. And I, I've never, I've never got a piece in there. I've never been, actually, I've never been anthologized in anything. So I hear this, and my first thought is like, right on, man, she's going to like shoehorn one of my pieces into the next edition. And I thought, actually, I haven't written any sports pieces in a couple of years. So I wasn't sure what exactly she was driving at. And then she said, do you want to be the guest editor? And, uh, again, it was like 4th of July, if fireworks are going off, and I was like, hell yeah, uh, I didn't even think to ask if it like pays anything or like what the job requirements were. You know, I, I was in. And then I heard from Glenn, you know, some time later. And again, they, they really picked the right dude for the job because, you know, he's like that experienced hostage negotiator. He's seen it all. He's seen all kinds of craziness. He takes it all in stride. Um, so... He talked me through the process, and basically what he does is, I guess it was around February, he just starts shipping up boxes of printouts of stories that have the publication, the date, and the byline removed. So it's just a straight, you know, word printout. Hmm. And that's it. So, you know, it's it cool. It's February. It was crappy outside. So you pour a scotch, put your feet in front of the fire. And you sit down and you just read like one amazing sports story after the other. That's really interesting. So now with the uh, – did you read anything that you said, you know, I've read this? You know, like did you come across a piece like, oh, I remember this from whatever? Um, it was less like that and more like pieces I'd seen that didn't come across in um, the stuff that, that Glenn sent up. So uh, and I'll give you an example. Um uh, the Deadspin story on Monte Teo right. uh, wasn't one of the things that was sent to me. And I believe uh, that piece on sports bras, you, can, you know, with that awesome title, you can only hope to contain them. Yep. I, I, Amanda Hess. Yeah, I don't believe that was sent to me. But this, that's the cool thing about it is, you know, Glenn is the caretaker of this process. He's not the owner. Um and he's done a really super job of deciding for himself. I mean, he basically defined what his position is going to be. And he decided he was not going to own it. He was going to just facilitate it. So I, I really expected that he would have been kind of sort of nudging me in certain directions. He was totally hands-off, um, so if I say, hey, you know, Glenn, how about this Monty Teo piece? So, yeah, help yourself, dude. You want to put it in? Put it in. So it was like that. So it wasn't as if I came across pieces. But hey, I'll tell you what, well, what, tell you what Steve, I will tell you something. Okay. It might be mildly inappropriate, but, but it's a pretty cool story, I think. Go um, for it. Nothing's inappropriate here. So uh, there are a couple stories that I put on my short list. So what you end up with is you read through a bunch of things, and you think, all right, you know, here's like 30 stories that, that really kick ass. And then you got you got to try and chop you know that number down to somewhere like twenty five to twenty or so. Yeah, there's twenty five in the book, I believe. 
Yeah, but even that's pretty flex. You know, you could go twenty, you could go twenty-eight. It wasn't it wasn't a hard and fast. You like you, you aim for twenty-five, but it's not it's not rigid. So when I had my short list, um, then I started to go back. Like you know, I wonder, I wonder who some of these writers are. So I I actually found out that two of the stories were guys I really don't like. Guys <laughs> I, I know personally don't like them. And I'm looking at these stories thinking, you know what? Here's a moral crisis. <laughs> you know, do I reward these guys for being guys I, you know, I don't like? Or do I be the bigger fella and stick the stories in anyway? So, um, you know, of course, you're always going to put the story in. But it's that moment of looking inward and trying to decide, uh, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person that sells grudges, <laughs> you know? Or are you the guy that actually does the job? Uh, the right way and gives the readers what they deserve. So two stories for guys that I think are dicks are, 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 in, are in the collection. You know, that's super candid and, and really interesting. <laughs> and one thing that honestly jumped out to me, and now I didn't know, I probably should have given how much we've talked to people who dealt with this book, but I didn't necessarily know or it didn't come to mind that you didn't have bylines. Makes sense, but I didn't necessarily think of it. But one thing that really jumped out uh, when I first got the book and started looking at it is there isn't a single... Uh, piece from Sports Illustrated in here. And I look back, I think I have every book back to about the 90s. I think I start, I think the first one on my shelf is 1989. It's a little bit too far for me to see. And that's the first one without a piece from Sports Illustrated. That was just really interesting to me. You know, it's funny. Again, I had no idea about that. And I, I assumed that there were a couple Sports Cell pieces in there because um, there are a couple pieces to me read like Sports Cell. So um, that one on Japanese uh, baseball league, you know, that like Iron Man pitcher, that kid who like threw like seven hundred pitches or whatever it was in one game. Um, I assumed that was a sports L piece when I read it, and well, the other thing was before I made my selections this time, I went back and read, you know, two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen, just to bring myself up on, on up to speed on the kind of stories and what the varieties like. And I wasn't familiar at the time with Thomas Lake, uh, but I read a couple of his stories. I, I'm not sure what years they were if he had a couple in a row. And, man, his stories were so good. Uh, that I read one story, and I assumed it was his. It just kind of sounded like a Thomas Lake story, but but it hmm. wasn't his. Yeah, the, uh, one thing that I thought was – another thing that I thought was interesting sort of along these lines is that 2011 book, which was the Jane Levy one, I believe has a piece from – from Alex Belth in it, that was the first one from a dot com in the book, and that's uh, you know sort of along the lines of the last question with no SI uh, in this one. But now, as we get to 2014 edition, your book, there's all kinds of dot com stuff, and again, you get them without bylines, so that just sort of happens by accident. But as someone who's in writing and uh, someone who who obviously has read more probably than ever this year doing this book, but as a reader, as a writer who's a reader also. Uh, where do you go for pieces? Are, are you a guy? Do you still read magazines? Do you like to go on the internet? What What are your trends? Well, yeah, that's a great question. The two things um, come to mind. Um, no, I, I don't think I've touched a physical magazine in my hand in in years. Uh, I live way out in the country, like we're in the middle of nowhere, and I have kind of sporadic work cycles where I'll have to do like a deep dive into research for sometimes a few months at a time. So if, like, uh, the book I've, I've been working on, just finished up, has a lot to do with World War II and, you know, European conflicts. So 
I've been up to my eyeballs in background reading on guerrilla warfare and resistance fighting and the Second World War. So I, I still have time. I don't have time to read magazines. So when you go on a magazine hiatus like that, you know, if it's something like Sports Illustrated, The New Yorker, you know, these weeklies, turn around like, holy Christmas, I got like a two-foot-high pile of magazines that I haven't touched. So um, you just get out of the habit of having physical prints. So I, I personally don't read a physical newspaper or a magazine anymore at all. <clears throat> the second thing is, you know, once you go digital, man, your net <clears throat> just gets so much wider because you're no longer going cover to cover in one publication. Instead, you're just dipping out in and out of a lot of different pools. So in the course of the day, I could read in and out of like 15 different magazines right. because, because they're all online. And the last thing, too, and I think this is really important, uh, and I think writers better, you know, snap up, wake up, that, and I think a lot of the writing online is so much sharper and better and crisper than the kind of writing we're seeing in magazines. Um, you know, Deadspin, um, Sports on Earth, you know, places like that, they understand that they have about a, a two-second window to catch the reader's attention or they're one click away from losing their audience. And so just the writing is just so much sharper and more vivid and designed to hook you. And I think one of the problems with print publications is they're still kind of coasting on their prestige and the investment factor. You know, if you, if you spent four bucks at the newsstand to buy The New Yorker, well, you know what, you're going to read your $4 worth. Right. But if you haven't paid anything for an, uh, an online article, you're going to move on. And so anyway, I, just, I just find the writing sharper. You can actually sort of tell when you see a piece now, whether it was an online publication or a print publication, because the online ones, I think to me, just a lot more snap, crackle, and pop. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Sports on Earth and also Grantland, which you have a few uh, pieces from Grantland in there. We like Grantland a lot on the podcast here. We've spoken, yeah, yeah. spoken to a lot of writers. Do you have a... Uh, this is something else I wondered about this, is we're kind of just talking about the 2014 Best American Sports Writing Edition with... Uh, Guest editor Christopher McDougall is kind enough to join us today. Uh, do you hear from people after this gets out there? Do do people track you down and say, "Hey, thank you so much for for putting this in"? Or or even worse, do you hear from people saying, "You know, I can't I can't believe you didn't." I, I doubt this because it's not the twelfth grade, but people saying, oh, "I can't believe my my piece got snubbed there." Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I'll reveal another confidence. Uh, I got a message from Glenn. So you know, there's uh, Glenn is very careful with how information is released. Um, and so, I forget exactly why, but he, doesn't, he wants to make sure everything is, is done in, in an orderly fashion. So, once the selections are made, I believe what he does first is he makes sure he can actually get the rights to republish the selections. And then he, or maybe it's the other way around, maybe he goes to the authors first and says, hey, we really want, want to use your story and can we reprint it? And, so after that day, he goes like all like in one day, he contacts all of the selected writers. And, you know, he got back to me afterwards. He's like, yeah, you know what? Some people, man, they went through the roof. They were so psyched, so happy. And he goes, some other people, like, they, they couldn't give a shit. <laughs> and I heard this, like, you know what? I think I messaged this back to him. I said, you know, pity those guys because what is wrong with your life? We're being selected for best American sports writing. I don't care, man, if you're like Frank DeFord and you're 85 and you've done this a million times. And I'm not saying this is Frank. I'm just using him as an example. But how do you still not just feel like totally psyched that your work has been 
plucked out and, and championed. Uh, and maybe that's, I'll speak as a guy whose work has never been plucked out and championed. I've never been picked. Um, so uh, I don't know. I just think that you got to be so psyched. But, you know, Glenn did say, and I did get, I did get some messages from a good number of people who were selected, and um, it is gratifying to see that they are just as excited about the selection as I would be if I ever got selected. Did you pick anything that ultimately wasn't included because they didn't want it to be or the re, the reprinting rights weren't granted or anything like that? I, I don't think, I, I've never Not heard that of that know. happening. Yeah. Um, it's just one of these kind of formalities that Glenn's got to make sure about because uh, oftentimes the writers themselves don't own the rights to the story. Like their publication still owns the rights. So, and the publication for whatever reason. But I, I haven't heard of that uh, that happening. Um, and the other thing too was uh, I personally got very little pushback, no pushback from writers at all, and only pushback by one person who felt uh, one story should have been selected and wasn't. Uh, and that was the um, the big Michael Jordan profile um, that got a lot of attention. And so someone you know sort of pushed back and said, "Hey, you know, you, you missed one," and uh, which I thought was kind of cool actually. Uh, I like the fact that some reader out there. He's ready to take up, you know, put his fists and, and fight for his writer. Right, yeah, I like that too. You know, when you were telling me about the different reactions from the writers that you heard, one thing I, I just wondered in my head real quickly was, I wonder if it's the more traditional writers that have a relationship with this book that get really excited and maybe some of the some of the newer, fresher writers who just don't even kind of, maybe for whatever reason, don't, don't I don't want to say don't get it, but don't really, I guess recognize for whatever reason, you know, how great this is and what a great history there is in the books for how many years. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, bet, you, I, bet, you, I bet you can't paint them all with one brush because, you know, I, for instance, I heard from, uh, goodness gracious, is it Amanda Ripley? The woman who wrote the piece for The Atlantic about uh, the case against high school sports. I mean, I mean, there is Amanda Ripley. All right, now, she's a feature writer for The Atlantic, and it doesn't come much more high prestige than that. And if anything is more high prestige than that, it's The New Yorker. And... Alice Gregory, who did that awesome piece on Mavericks for the New Yorker, uh, so I, I heard from both of them, and both of them were like super excited and super happy. So th- those are definitely two print publications about as good in the game as you can get. And those two writers couldn't have been more psyched. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, you know, I was thinking also just to react to a couple things you said. I was thinking a little bit about uh, the Michael Jordan piece. You know, you missed one, and for the last few years, as stuff comes out, I always. When I read them, I always think, oh, this is maybe one we'll see. And, and so far this year, a couple that have come to mind, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to check them out, and maybe if you haven't, you might. Uh, Tommy Tomlinson, who wrote for a while for Sports on Earth and is now kind of freelancing a little bit, wrote a really great piece on, uh, uh, I can't think of it, for, uh, Lorenzen, the quarterback from Kentucky that played for the Giants, who's sort of battling obesity. Uh, that was in ESPN the Magazine. That was great. And also ESPN the Magazine had a really great piece on Jerry Jones, uh, that was written by Don Van Natta, who's also in your book. So those are a couple things that just kind of came to mind. Uh, hey, was, that, was, that, was that one um, about the obese quarterback? Was the writer himself also obese? Yes. Yep. 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 I remember that. Well, that's, that's good. So, I tell you, see, this is what's so cool about this job. So there's stuff, I mean, unfortunately, I, I'm out of the game now, man. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even when I knew I was going to be doing this, I was like mentally like, oh, yeah, there was that piece about the one-legged wrestling. I think it was freaking awesome. So in the back of your mind, you were already selecting stuff even before you knew you were selecting. Um, and there was another one. Uh, but, uh, so, oh, yeah, that Don Van piece. I, I, I read, was Don Van was, was that the one on Bobby Riggs? 
that was the matchmaker. Yeah, the yep. Bobby Riggs one. Yep. Now, I'd read that in the original when it first came out, and I was like, oh, my God, because I remember that. I'm of that generation. You know, I was like 10 or 12 years old, whatever, when that uh, Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King match was going on. And for me, it was frozen in time right there. Like the story began and ended in 1972. And then all of a sudden, you know, whatever, 40 years later, 30 years later, this story comes out. And, like, what you saw in front of you had nothing to do with what was really going on behind the scenes. And for a writer to, you know, pull that kind of a magic act and show you, you know, the trick that was being played, like, holy shit. And so I remember reading that story and thinking, oh, man, this is amazing. And then that one-legged wrestler piece, again, I think I've almost never read a story like that. I can only think of one other story I've ever read that was similar and what i mean but like not like that is a guy that knows the subject inside and out um knows it as well as the people in the story and yet has the discipline to step outside the story so again i don't even know who this guy is who wrote that wrestling story uh it's a name i've never seen before but i remember i saw on deadspin i could care less about wrestling i i've probably never even seen a high school or college wrestling match in my life I expected to be turned off on this story, and this dude just reeled me in like a marlin. And um, I think it's because he knew wrestling up and down, inside and out. And then you lay on top of that this really remarkable young man, and then you lay on top of that really good writing. There was a guy who did a book on professional like con men and gamblers. Uh, this is an out-of-print book from the 60s. That was like the only other time I've read something where the guy knew this stuff so perfectly and yet could write about it in a really journalistic way. You know, that's really interesting. It's something else I wanted to ask you. When we talked to Jane Levy about this book, uh, obviously Jane has sort of made her name writing about baseball, and, and amazingly so, to her Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle books are a couple of my favorites. And uh, when we talked to her about the book and, and asking somewhat similar questions to her, one thing she said to me was, you know, when I look back at the books that had been out before the one I did, uh, one thing I noticed was, and I'm paraphrasing her, obviously, not a direct quote, but one thing that I noticed was there, I felt like there was too many, she felt like there was too many pieces about extreme sports. And she wanted to present a book that somehow reflected uh, a little bit more traditional sports. And I thought that was, I thought of that when I was researching you and, and knowing that you have this amazing book about running, which it's not a non traditional sport by any means, obviously. Uh, running is, is very traditional, but maybe outside of the scope of the four major sports as we might see them or, or you know, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever. But I was wondering, uh, for someone who maybe has at this point written the, the, the book about running, um, you know, did you have a, a higher standard when you uh, read pieces that were about it or um, or uh, a related area? Or did you maybe want to include it more because you had maybe a little bit of a, a soft spot in your heart for that type of athletics? Oh, man. Dude, Steve, you are a good interviewer. That is a really smart, piercing question because Thank I actually you. ran into that situation. There were a number of stories about running that were – um, presented, and I only selected one, and it was a really unusual one because it really kind of why I picked, picked really wasn't about running. It was about getting lost in the wilderness and this desire to take on these outdoor challenges. But um, you know, I'll tell you, the stories that didn't make the cut usually were for for two reasons. But one of them 
the foremost is sometimes you get the feeling that the writer really doesn't know what he or she's talking about. You know, that like, and that's going to sound like a, a, a mean thing to say, uh, I, but I've been guilty of it too. You, you have a take on a subject, you think you got it, you write it, and then afterwards you look back on it, you realize, you know what, I, I didn't really have my arms on this thing. Uh, so some of the things I saw about running which is sort of the same thing you always see about running, you know, it's just try really hard and, you know, fight through the pain. And that's really not the experience most runners have. Um, so that was one thing. So yeah, I mean, maybe because I spent a lot of time in that field the past, I don't know, seven or eight, ten years, you start to get more of um, a sharper eye for stuff that isn't really representative of the sport. Um, or sometimes they're writing about people you personally know, and you realize, no, you, you didn't get this guy. Uh, and the second reason why you sometimes stay away is because the subject himself is more polished and knows how to deflect an interview. And that's one of the real problems with professional sports now, team sports, is, man, these guys are so handled and so managed, it's really tough. Matter of fact, when you call at this moment, I was reading like an, uh, an interview um, from Playboy with Joe Namath in like the 1970s or something, and to see the answers that Joe Namath is giving, it's like, man, there's like no way any professional athlete today would ever, yeah. ever do that. But it's to Namath's credit because he comes across as way smarter, way more kind and balanced than I ever imagined he was. So that's it. I mean, that was the thing about it is when you're familiar with a sport, then you are more um, discerning about what stuff makes the grade. You know, we talk about that all the time on this show, about how, as readers, we so much want candor and insight from... We, we almost never have athletes on this show because when we interview them, we don't... And maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not asking the right questions. I do my best, but we just can't get anything there. It just ends up being very canned, like almost like I could have answered for them. But yet, when we have someone who, who steps out and takes a risk and is very candid, maybe like you said, uh, Namath was in that piece from Playboy, he gets crushed. You know, it's either, oh, we provide a bulletin board material, or, oh, he's too cocky, or a list of reasons why. And I think that that really hurts, uh, hurts the field maybe a little bit. Well, you know, we're lucky now that we got um, Barack Obama in office, because if anybody has had to develop a tough skin, it's this guy. And, you know, I always kind of look at him as, oh, you know, who else is like that, too? Is Malcolm Gladwell. Um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell came out with one of his books, maybe Outliers. And in Outliers, he made a really big mistake. There, there was some sort of technical term, and he misspelled it, like badly misspelled it throughout the entire book. And he basically like, spelled it phonetically. He looked way off base. And it, it's kind of embarrassing, you know. It, it was, there's no way you can sort of portray yourself as an expert in the subject when you misspell the most important word of the subject. So the New York Times Review of Books does a, a, a cover piece just lambasting Glywell. And Glywell's response was just like shrug it off with a smile. You know, he wrote a response like, yeah, yeah, I really messed up. You know, I misspelled it. And he explained himself. He didn't take it personally. didn't get upset. And he moved on. And so... You know, I, 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 you sort of hope that more public figures learn to do that. That if they take, you know, poke their head out of the shell and someone steps on it, they just forge ahead and you know don't get don't get intimidated. You know, uh, 
again, uh, it's the best American sports writing, Christopher McDougall, 2014 edition. You can get it. Uh, I got it at a Barnes & Noble just down the street. And uh, he's at McDougall Chris on Twitter if you want to uh, let him know how great you thought it was. And um, the one the one thing, I, before we get too far away, I'm probably running out of time anyway, but uh, I mentioned Born to Run. And one thing that even before I knew that you were going to be the editor of this, before I even knew I would approach you to be on it, one thing that I've always noticed is I'm sort of a fan of ebooks. I never thought I would be, but the ability to read it in my bed with the lights off when my wife is sleeping is just huge for me. You know, because that gives me like an extra hour of like reading light time where I can just have my phone in my hand and and reading this book. So it's huge. This thing has been in like the top five on ebooks for as long as I've read them. And I just I, I, so many times I, I'm just like, I have to read this. What What is it about this book? I know nothing about running. Uh, if I've ever wanted to move move fast, I've skated. I'm a hockey player at heart and I get shin splints. So I get mad at running. Uh, but I just. Did you ever imagine that this thing, it was released in 2009 and 2013, or 14 even, I just looked before, it's number seven on ebooks and sports right now. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's had a, a crazy good rise, Steve, and I think, I think a big part of the reason is that I wasn't a runner when I wrote the book, you know, I was a guy that was pretty, kind of like you, man, I'd been hurt all the time trying to run, yeah, I was coming across this evidence that it's supposed to be a natural thing, like, you know, human, um, the human species' greatest natural strength. So I, I think I approached the story kind of like, you know, there are a ton of movies about sports that I don't care about the sports, but I like the movies, like, like, like Tin Cup, you know, um, or like Bull Durham. Again, baseball is off. If they vanish from the planet tomorrow, I wouldn't even notice but those two movies, those are movies about golf and baseball for people who don't give a rat's ass about golf and baseball. And I think um, that's what I was really aiming for with Born to Run was let's focus on the adventure story and let the other stuff just kind of filter in as it goes along. And, um, and hopefully that's the reason why people respond to it. One last thing about that and then we'll wrap up. You mentioned that your next book, uh, you've been working on about World War II, and I always I've asked this to several writers when, when they have a book like this. Does having a book that's been as well received that has done as well as this have does it put a pressure on you that you've never experienced as a writer when you're working on that next thing? Do you feel do you feel that in some way like oh man, Born to Run, 2014, here it is, still number seven. I have to try to duplicate that in some way with this. World War II book, which especially with that is a totally different scope. You have totally different readers, I assume. Uh, is that? Do you feel that pressure, or do you just, man, nah, next thing, here we go? Um, yeah, it was a weird thing. So when, when I was working on Born to Run, I mean, that's when I really felt the pressure, because when all the elements of the story started coming together, I was like, oh, my God. You know, I feel like I'm holding this, like, priceless vase in my hands, because the story itself, the raw story was so good, you know, that if anybody, if this book sucks, it's only for one reason. It's because you blew it, because the raw subject itself is awesome. So, yeah, you feel like you were handling this, like, priceless stuff, and you're the one who's going to mess it up. So there's a lot of pressure in writing Born to Run. I really wanted to make it, the book, as good as the material. Um, and then when I finished writing it, I thought, dude, that was it, man. You will never come across material as good as that again. And then when I came across the subject for this book, I, I sort of you know, felt that excitement. Like, hey, this is a really, really good story. I mean, basically what it's about, it's a bunch of like 
civilians, you know, academics who got dumped behind enemy lines uh, in Greece, behind German lines, and started pulling off these like really wild Hogan's Heroes kind of exploits to um, take down, you know, the German occupiers. So when I came across this material, you said I feel that excitement, like, man, this is a ripping good story. So it was less a feeling of pressure and more a feeling of like, you know, dude, you've, uh, the dice have come up for you again and make sure you do right by this material. Yeah, wow. It, it, I can, I can, it's really cool because I can hear the, the kind of excitement you have for, for the book. And, you know, one thing about history books that I always, I always sort of, a, it's interesting to me is that it always seems like we, we get the most of them around an anniversary or something. Like last year with Kennedy, I believe it was the 50th, let's see, 63, yeah, 20, 63 to 13. It must have been the 50th uh, anniversary of that. Uh, there was all these books, and I think we we featured one on the show, something we had never really done before, being mostly a sports show. But uh, I, I'm, I was, I'm into the Kennedy thing for whatever reason, and um, that was a really cool cool way to do it. Is that is that the, the way it is out there, that people want – a reason to put this book out on an anniversary, or uh, what? What? What made that marketable right now? I'm just curious. Uh, yeah, it's funny about the anniversary thing. I had a really smart editor once at Philadelphia Magazine that was saying, like, you know what? Forget, forget all the news tags. Nobody cares. You know, it's only writers and editors get all excited about them. It's the 25th anniversary of this. We had to do a story. Like, nobody cares if it's a good story. You don't need to have a date or peg on it. So um, for this book, no, there, there was no, there was no peg at all. Uh, it was just something, a tiny little footnote of an idea that I came across while I was researching Born to Run, and I, I kind of put it aside, and then I started looking into it after Born to Run was done, and started researching it, and then the thing just started to open up and take on more and more uh, complexity. So yeah, there, there was no anniversary peg here at all. It was just basically what I could find out and when I could get it written. I totally agree with you on that as well, by the way. Uh, Chris McDougall, the author of, Christopher McDougall, the author of Born to Run, uh, was the editor of the Best American Sports Writing Series, the 2014 edition. Kind enough to spend this much time. Again, he's at McDougall Chris on Twitter. And the last thing I want to ask you to kind of put an end to this is, uh, I told you that before I, before I, I called you, I looked back at some of the books because of that Sports Illustrated thing was the, what made me think to look at them. And, Got me wondering for a second, uh, sort of back on what we said about Jane with her wanting to maybe go back to traditional sports, and her book is also will be remembered as the first time the dot-coms got in the book, and I would think that each editor hopes that their book has some kind of personality, and I wonder three, four, five, even maybe ten years from now, when we look back at the 2014 edition of this anthology, what do you hope it's remembered as? What do you want this book to be the, the year that Best American sports writing reflected this. Yeah, wow. Another, another, another smoking good question. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I understand how Glenn feels where he's kind of custodian because by the time you're done this, it's not even your book at all. You're kind of in awe of some of the stuff these writers pulled off. Again, that sports bra piece, I thought, Jesus, why didn't anybody ever think of that before? You know, this is a tiny little piece of technology which has revolutionized sports. There are millions of people participating in sports today that couldn't have a few years ago, only because somebody solved a, a tiny little engineering problem. So, and then the way um, Amanda has tells the story, making it really fun and active and smart. Yeah, it's basically, uh, 
I can't answer your question too well because you don't really think of it as your book or you don't even think of it as a book. You just think of it as this kind of all-star team, you know, um, of great players, each one of them taking the court and showing their stuff. And, and that's kind of what it is. Uh, I, I don't think of the book having its own character. I just think of all these stories you know, individually being really powerful. Mr. McDougall, I appreciate so much you taking the time to do this today. Hopefully I didn't get greedy and take too much of your time. I know how valuable it is. Steve, honestly, I'm going for three more hours. I really enjoyed this conversation. So, <laughs> hey, man, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, hey, we don't do a lot of history, so it might be a different spot, but we have done it before and we got a good response. Maybe when you're out uh, um, you know, promoting the next book, maybe we can get you in here and we can, we can do a similar conversation. I'd love to do it. I bet you've never done an episode on parkour before, and that's uh, – <laughs> That's one of the elements of the book I did. I, hey, I'd love to have you back. Thank you so much. Cool. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Talk to you soon. All right, see you. All right, huge thanks to Christopher McDougall for being on the podcast today. Just finishing up my first run at this, doing it by myself. Actually, uh, Colston's hanging out on my lap right now, all anxious and, and finding out what's going on here. But I uh, want to thank, uh, like I said, Christopher for being on the show. Hopefully you'll check out the best American sports writing anthology. Don't forget you can find our work, this week's podcast, last week's with Bob McKenzie and Lee Jenkins, on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at sports underscore casters there. Email us. Let me know how I did. Even if it's bad, the sportscasters at gmail.com is the way to email us there. So please reach out. Love hearing from people whenever we can. Last thing to end the show today, I want to talk about the Sabres for a second. It's sort of a one last thing. The Sabres were terrible last year. They were historically terrible. And not much has changed this year. They're still historically terrible. They lost to the Maple Leafs 4 to nothing the other day and had 10 shots on goal in the entire game. They are an awful, awful, dreadful team. And I bring it up only because the other night I had on Twitter, I don't know if I want to say an argument, but maybe a misunderstanding with Mike Harrington of the Buffalo News, who's been on this show in the past. And he's going to join us again sometime in November to talk about this more. What's going on with the Sabres? But... Mike doesn't think that fans should embrace the idea that this team is really bad, so forget it. Let's just be awful and hopefully be in that number one pick and have a chance to pick Connor McDavid, who many consider the best prospect in the draft since Sidney Crosby. And if you don't get that player, you get Jack Eichel at number two, who's maybe the best American hockey player in the draft since Patrick Kane. Now, the only way to guarantee you get one of those guys is to finish dead last. Because even if you don't win the lottery, you can only fall back to number two. That's the way the NHL system works. So, look at I got reasons to not pay attention to the Sabres this year. One of them is, I have Yale hockey this year. One last time, one last year. My brother's senior year at Yale. And I'm going to focus on that. And I'm okay with it. I'm going to... They start this weekend. Finally. Uh, the Ivy League teams are back and playing and... And I'm going to enjoy Yale hockey this year. I'm going to watch the Yale hockey games at home, and I'm going to travel to them, and I'm going to forget about the Sabres for the most part. 
And that's okay with me for this year. I've invested a lot of money in a bad team the last few years as a season ticket holder, and I just wasn't going to do it this year. I wanted that money for other things like trips to Yale or wherever else my brother might be playing for Yale. So I'm okay with them being bad. And I don't know that many other fans aren't like that. And Mike doesn't think that that's right, but I don't see why it wouldn't be. Even at this team's absolute best, they're probably not playoffs. So why not be the worst, especially this year? And yeah, they're not one magical 18-year-old away from being good. It still might take some time after McDavid or Eichel comes in, if God bless it, they do. But there's nothing like that now. Not yet with Sammy Reinhardt. We don't know how good he is yet. Hopefully he's close to that. But he doesn't look ready for the NHL in his his time in Buffalo so far this year. I'd assume he's going to go back to juniors. But when you look at the organization as a whole and the pieces that are there, there's a reason for optimism. I don't need it next year. But I know if they can get close to it, if maybe the year after that they can battle for the playoffs and make it in and maybe get a couple exciting wins as a young team, that that following year, I know that with the money and the owner that we have, the team will make that last step. And it makes me excited. So I'm willing to tank. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in it. I'm, I'm ready to, to blow it and stink this year. I'm fine with it. And uh, I hope, as strange it is, as it is, for nothing else than the Sabres to finish dead last this year. And I can't wait to talk to Mike Harrington about it sometime in November. Say 